from KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. A few years ago on Good Food, I had a conversation with Dr. Amber Spry, Assistant Professor of African American Studies and Politics at Brandeis University, where she teaches a class on identity politics in the United States. Each semester, she begins her class with an exercise she calls a rice breaker asking students how their family cooked rice growing up. The simple question reveals volumes. When I learned a field trip in Harlem, the first restaurant in what is now a restaurant group, I was reminded of this query. Field trip highlights rice traditions around the world, and the chef behind the concept is J.J. Johnson. He is here to discuss, well, you guessed it, rice. Hi, J.J. Welcome to Good Food. It's really great to have you. How are you? I'm great. I'm happy you're here with us. So we have to know, what's your answer to the rice breaker? How did your family cook rice when you were growing up? Oof, such a breaker. Uh, my family cooked rice. My grandmother, Iris, cooked rice in one of those steel-looking pots. Um, she would wash her rice. She would use her finger as a trick to measure the rice. And those dishes would be anywhere from arroz con gondulas to paella to chicken and rice uh, or to the perfect pot of fluffy white rice. Uh, but it was always done on the top of the stove. I understand that it was a trip to Ghana that changed the way that you thought about rice. Could you, could you kind of share your thoughts on rice from culinary school to that first taste in Ghana? Culinary school, I'll start there, was, it was rice pilaf. That was the only rice. And some fried rice in Asian cookery. It was really brushed over. There wasn't any talk about technique or the history or how essential it is to the diet. And then when I went to Ghana, the first moment around rice where people were going crazy was at a woman's home she was making jollof rice and everybody was waiting. It was like that moment of like, you're at a concert and you're waiting for the artist to come <laughs> out and you've been waiting all night. I love that. And I'm like, why is everybody so antsy? It's just rice. Like, why aren't we excited about the goat? Or why aren't we excited about the guinea hen stew? But I know why everybody was excited. That moment of me having Ghanaian jollof changed my whole perspective on rice. The grain was fluffy, it was spicy, there was nuttiness to it, didn't taste like any rice I ever had before. And it made me dive really deep in, you know, 2012. Uh, you know, that year after 2011 and 2012, started diving really deep into rice and researching it, where the grains come from, why is it so significant? Going back to your first question is, there's so much, there's so many grains of rice, there's so many significant grains that pay impact to history across the world. So then I, that's why I started to dig really deep. Yeah. I mean, there are 28 different rices that you feature in the book, which is kind of crazy in The Simple Art of Rice. That one picture really made me stop the one in the book. And I started counting across the columns and down the line and when I think about it, I think maybe most people have cooked with two or three, maybe four. Did you immediately embrace them all or were some kind of harder to center with the way that you cook? 
Well, let me say this. Most of us are eating bleach-enriched rice, right? Called Carolina rice or some type of white American rice that's bleached and enriched that I tell people not to eat, right? And I think that was a first step for me to get past. It was like, I got to let go of this rice and I need to start embracing more, I need to start embracing the grain that is of America, which is Carolina gold rice. And how can I embrace that? Right? How can I learn about it, the essence of it, why it is, why it was taken off the shelf, why it was a lost crop? How do I embrace that? And that allowed me then to really embrace all the other grains that I probably have five or six grains that I constantly are cooking in my household, which is jasmine rice, some type of basmati, black rice, broken rice, or pearl rice, uh, Carolina gold, Midlands. Those are the grains that are in my house. But, you know, I use each grain in a different way. I mean, that's just the beauty of, of rice is like, you just can't think that, oh, I'm going to use basmati or I'm just going to use jasmine and everything's going to come out great. That's not how it goes. Um, it's kind of like pasta, right? You use different shapes of pasta for different types of sauces or meats. That's the same thing about rice. But the difference with rice is that it makes your life so much easier because you have a good amount of leftover for the next day or the day after that you can do other things with. So that's how I embraced the grain. And then I started going into, ooh, what about emerald green? Or ooh, what about bumbo? Or ooh, what about California white rice, right? You start to then want to graduate into these other rices because you realize that it plays a significant part based off where people live or that grain you want or need or it has some great flavor to it or it's going to help you cook a dish better. Once you returned onto rice and you really began doing the research, what did you learn about yourself? You know, I mean, a lot of people do these things, you know, and these ancestry things that tell them about who they are. Um, I've never done that, but the rice has tell, told me about myself. The rice my grandmother cooked told me about, oh, we, we are Puerto Rican and what part of Puerto Rico are we from based off the way she cooks that dish or... My grandmother and my grandfather, my grandfather is from Mississippi. He puts okra in his gumbo and pours it on top of the rice, right? That points you to Mississippi, very close to the coast of Louisiana. So rice can tell you about history, about your family, about where you're from, because where you're from, you start to cook with other ingredients around around you that go in the rice, why you constantly see rice and beans, or you see seafood and rice, or you see spices, right? Because these ingredients are also growing beside the rice or in that region, and will tell you about yourself, your family, or the people. That's why I constantly say rice is culture. It is made up of somebody's culture in that dish, or in that grain, or where it's grown. So... I, I, you know, I remember being afraid to cook rice a million years ago. And um, before I was going out with a Persian man for many years, and that sort of knocked the fear of rice out of me. But I remember when I used to worry about making mushy rice before, you know, rice cookers were ubiquitous and everywhere. You have a really thorough rice cooking troubleshooting section, which is awesome, what are some of the most important things we should keep in mind when we're cooking rice on the stove? So, you know, the most important thing that I want people to realize is rice doubles in size, right? So if you've been cooking rice and, it, you know, use that little old small pot, you're putting three cups of rice and it's, 
it's growing to the top of the pot and you're like, okay, why is it top crunchy and the bottom mushy? Because the rice didn't expand. It doubles in size. So you need the right size pot to make perfectly cooked rice. And I would say that's the first step. You have the pot, you wash the rice, you put the rice in the pot, you use your third finger, you bring the liquid up to your first knuckle, you put the top on, you bring it to medium heat, you don't shake it, you don't open the top, you don't stir it, you let it go for about 22 to 25 minutes, you take it off the heat, you fluff it and you add salt to it, you put the top back on for about five more minutes and let it rest and you have this perfect pot of rice. And I know I said it like it's so simple, but it really is. It's very easy to do. I think just a lot of us are so used to making pasta that we stir the pasta or we shake the pot. We don't want to leave things alone. And rice is one of those one of those ingredients that want to be left alone. Like you might have somebody in your family that's sometimes like, okay, just give me some space. That's what rice is once it gets in the <laughs> pot and wants to do its thing. Why are we fluffing the rice? What's the deal with taking a fork and fluffing the rice and then putting the top back on? Well, for me, when you're fluffing the rice, it allows for the the grains to then not stick together, right? That initial first rice starch, right? Doesn't stick together. Um, it allows you to season your rice when you're fluffing it because when you put the salt in the pot, it tightens up the grain and doesn't allow it to burst. And also while you're fluffing the rice, you see that there's some crunchy parts of the rice stuck to the bottom of the pan that people fight off of. The reason why I tell you to fluff the rice and then let it rest is because in that resting process, the bottom of the pot, that crunchy part, will release. So when you pull off that first part of rice and then that bottom part will slide right out and you don't have to use that elbow grease to be scrubbing out the rice kernels or the rice grains in the bottom that people hate. So let's talk about sourcing it. Do you do you want to give a shout out to any particular maybe online sources or places people can go to source different rices that isn't their grocery store? Yeah, I mean, I'm a I I, I give a big shout out to Glenn Roberts at Anson Mills. He's a mentor to me all things around rice and they've done a great job of bringing Carolina Gold and Charleston Gold back on the map and they deserve all that credit. Um, so I give a big shout out to them. Um, there's a lot of great rice farmers around, if you, you know, in New Jersey's Blue Moon, uh, Three Brothers in Hudson Valley, New York. But there's so many. And what I'm seeing is like places, local grocery stores now are starting to carry these freshly milled rice grains in the American South, which means there's a whole rice movement coming. And once that happens, I think, you know, rice will start to change how we grow it because it's so tied to climate change. So, you know, I'm always supporting some of those local rice farmers I just mentioned right now and always looking for new rice farmers. I try to tell people if you go to the farmer's market and you buy duck from somebody, a duck farmer, nine out of 10 times they're growing rice because the duck are swimming in the same water that they're growing the rice in. Well, that's so interesting. So could you kind of pick a recipe or two from the book that you think everyone would love to try? Ooh, yeah. Right now, I'm, I'm recooking through the book. Um, and my favorite dish right now where I got up to is the cinnamon lamb rice. It's, you know, one pot dish that I love. And then 
a dish I've been making with my kids have been the rice cookies, which are very cool and tasty and light and airy and, and, and chewy and moist. I'm a big person of like always trying to upgrade the cabinet or the cupboard, right? And I have rice flour in my house and it was like, okay, it's sitting here. Uh, what should I do with it? And I was like, oh, let's try to make cookies. And that's how that whole rice cookie thing started. So it's gluten-free, bakes really beautifully. It has, you know, those essence of warming spice. And then with the great thing about the recipe, it's like a great foundational cookie that you can then add other things to it as you get comfortable with it. If it's chips, if it's chocolate, I mean like chocolate chips, if it's nuts, if it's this, it gives you that, it gives you that playing ground to be a great foundation so you can build on it. Well, thank you so much, JJ. This has been so much fun. Oh, thanks. JJ Johnson is chef and founder of Field Trip, a restaurant group headquartered in Harlem that highlights rice traditions from around the world. We've been discussing his new cookbook, The Simple Art of Rice. We've got the recipe for his spiced rice cookies on our website, and yes, they are gluten-free. We've also got JJ's list of online retailers where you can order unique varieties that you might not find in your grocery store. It's all at KCRW com slash good food. Continuing the theme of rice as identity, we turn to a new book by chef Eric Ajapong. Instead of writing a cookbook, the Top Chef alum has written a children's book with themes of culture and home. Eric joins us to expand on the power of food, place, and family identity. Hi, Eric. Welcome to Good Food. Evan, thank you so much for having me. So many chefs write cookbooks. What about your background propelled you to write a book for children? I think the number one thing that propelled me to write a cookbook for children was wanting to kind of do that for myself, for my younger self. Growing up, um, being so enamored with food and, and um, kind of falling in love with somewhat of the industry, so to speak, I uh, never really saw a lot of books, publications, anything that... Uh, spoke specifically to my background or the food that I grew up eating um, or even just folks that look like me. Um, so this was something that I, I would have loved to read um, or have read, excuse me, when I was younger. Um, but it's kind of like a little bit of a letter, a uh, love letter to my younger self, so to speak. And you have a daughter. Do You must have had her in mind as well. Oh my gosh, tremendously. Uh, I give her a quick little shout out in the in the beginning. Um, and she's thought of throughout the entire book. Um, when I think about food and belonging, I think about essentially the things that I had to go through and the travels that I had to go through um, to essentially kind of uh, have a footing with my culinary background, with uh, my POV. So having my daughter and, and, and kind of skipping that steps or those steps for her, um, and I can kind of present this to her in a way that's packaged and she already knows who she is and um, she doesn't necessarily need to go through all those steps is, is tremendous. So uh, the fact that she can self-identify at such a young age is, is a huge uh, look up. You're first-generation Ghanaian-American. How much of your childhood resembled that of your character, Kofi, who experiences anxiety after being asked to bring a dish that represents his culture to a school potluck? Yeah, um, 
it's so funny. I think about the duality of growing up um, as a New York City kid and, and then also growing up in a traditional West African home. Uh, you know, my folks come, came from Ghana in the late 80s. So what they knew as far as lifestyle and, and tradition and, and clothing and music and food was mostly West African. So really, I patterned the protagonist, Kofi, off of myself and essentially how I grew up um, and, and wanted to kind of show so many parallels between uh, things that I experienced and what I know a lot of first-generation Americans experience as well. In your book, Sankofa, Kofi has a special relationship with his Nana Barima or grandfather. Did, did you have a grandfather in your life who had an influence on you? from a culinary standpoint, or was there another person who played that role? You know what? No, it wasn't my grandfather, but it was my uncle, my Uncle Joseph, Uncle Joe. Um, he uh, worked at the Regal Royal Hotel um, back when it was uh, up and standing in New York City and um, just always had a, a knack for, for cooking. Um, he was an amazing home cook. Excuse me, he is an amazing home cook. His background is Lebanese and, and Ghanaian. Um, so he would have so many like amazing Middle Eastern um, components and flavors and influences in his dishes that was just so delicious. And that kind of combination of cultures was uh, really, really special. So I think even though technically in the book it's my, my grandfather, I think for me, my culinary compass uh, growing up, so to speak, was my Uncle Joe. Kofi encounters spices, plantains and rice at the market and his grandfather explains how Carolina gold rice made its way to America. Using food to explain America's difficult history and slavery to children is really, really smart. What, what dish does Kofi end up bringing to that potluck at school? Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. The stories of Africa, I always say, is you know, the second biggest continent, yet those stories, the food stories are so unknown. And the story that uh, Kofi essentially learns and, and takes pride in is, you know, the story of Carolina gold rice, as you mentioned. But he brings home, uh, to, or at least to the potluck, he brings jollof rice, which is, um, you know, I say if any, like, alien was to drop down in, in Africa and ask anyone in the continent, um, like, point me to, like, your country's dish or the, the continent's dish, I think jollof rice would be um, high up in the running for, you know, a contender as far as, like, what would be presented. It's such a, an iconic dish um, that's so beloved by every country and also the regions in, in um, Africa. So this is what Kofi ends up bringing to um, his potluck. And um, as you mentioned, all the spices and the things that he's learned from uh, his grandfather really give him the confidence to stand in front of his class and speak proudly about the food that he loves. What does the title of the book Sankofa mean in Twi? So it means that it's not too taboo to go and fetch, or it can mean that it's not wrong to make amends for something um, that you might have you might have faulted in the past. I take a lot of spirit in the first meaning. Um, you know, it's not too taboo to go back and, and fetch, and that's what you kind of see a lot in the book, where there's a lot of kind of like flashbacks and and just going in different places and and really transporting um, Kofi his mind at least to different parts of time um, where you know it might have been a more difficult time through slavery and present time as well so just really going back and and taking honor um, in the the people that brought you here but then also the techniques that are still you know um, staying tried and true to this day do you have a cookbook of family recipes that was passed down to you you know, Evan, I don't. Um, 
And that's one thing that I specifically wanted to change, uh, especially with like my generation for so long. And um, you'll see it throughout so many families, African families, uh, Caribbean families, uh, Black American families. A lot of the recipes that we know and we cook are often orally transferred and they're they're told essentially. So if you're not in the kitchen, you're not, you don't know what's <laughs> how to make it. You don't know the steps. So I, I definitely um, am taking the steps to actually try to systematically put that in order because these are, this is essentially uh, our culture's kind of uh, jewels, you know, these recipes and, and things that essentially that our ancestors have been making for generations. So it, it's really on us to kind of continue um, that is, is in that tradition as much as possible. So um, I'm encouraging a lot of people, uh, especially uh, first gen, you know, uh, African-Americans, Africans to inquire, you know, if your grandparents, if your parents are still around, ask how, you know, how did you make this soup? How did you make this stew? And really try to systematically write these things down. Thank you so much, Eric. Oh my gosh, Evan, it was so fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Chef Eric Edjapong. We've been discussing Sankofa, a culinary story of resilience and belonging. It's a really wonderful children's book that explains history and will facilitate discussions of culture and family with the little ones in your life. Coming up, how a line of applesauce pouches, the ubiquitous after-school snack for families around the country, came to be contaminated with lead and what the FDA is doing about it. Welcome back to Good Food. At the time of this recording, the CDC has received reports documenting nearly 400 cases of alarming lead blood levels in individuals across 41 states. The average age of the victims, one. The culprit, cinnamon applesauce pouches. While there are countless horror stories about tainted food, from baby formula to romaine lettuce, this one caught our attention because of the complexity of the supply chain that led, pun not intended, to this disaster. Here to unravel the story for us is reporter Helena Bademiller-Evich, who writes Food Fix, a food policy newsletter that we actually look forward to reading. Hi, Helena. Hi, thanks for having me. So my understanding is that lead toxicity has no symptoms at first. So how did the medical community and federal regulators even find out that children across the country were seeing elevated levels of lead in their blood? Yeah, it's such a fascinating story. And I've been saying it's kind of a miracle that we even know about this, which is scary, right? That this could could have happened and we could have not known. But the way we found out here is health officials in North Carolina noticed that four kids had elevated levels of lead in their blood. And they they knew this because CDC actually funds routine blood lead level screening, I think in every state. So it's not necessarily every kid will get screened, but if you're in a high-risk area that maybe has really old housing stock where they worry about lead paint and other environmental exposure, or if you live in a city that still has lead pipes like I do in Washington, D.C., all of our kids here are screened at least twice before they're two. So they actually have data 
they have a method of picking up when kids have high levels of lead. In North Carolina, they noticed four kids had high levels of lead, but they couldn't figure out anything in the home. They couldn't find paint. They couldn't find an environmental reason. And these health officials really went the extra mile to ask what else could it be. And they eventually figured out that it was these pouches. That led to recalls, started with four kids. And as you mentioned, over the past three months, we have now learned of 354 cases under investigation. And that's almost certainly an undercount. So we really owe a lot to the state of North Carolina, you know, for connecting the dots here. Did did the children have to be eating large quantities of the applesauce? Or are there kids that only had it one or two times? So we don't know about the actual amount of exposure per child, but the levels of lead in these pouches were so high that if you or your child had consumed even one pouch, you would want to get your blood tested. The pouches themselves were probably 200 to 500 times the even generous lead limits that we would see for, we don't, we don't, here's the thing, we don't have limits yet for baby food, for heavy metals, but FDA is working on it. And these were many times higher than what would be considered reasonable or safe. We don't have levels? No. So, yeah, we have levels for just a couple of foods. Um, Rice cereal would be one. Um, You may have heard, you know, rice can uptake arsenic. And so for a long time, we've been worried about, you know, rice cereal for babies So there are some limits for rice cereal, for example, but for the vast majority of baby foods, we do not. However, the state of California just this year mandated testing for heavy metals for all baby food. So we're about to see a lot more focus on this area. FDA is working on setting limits for a whole number of heavy metals in baby foods. So this process is happening, but it is happening very, very slowly. Okay, so, I mean, we know that babies love applesauce. Walk us through the production line of a product like this. Yeah, so in this case, the pouches were made in Ecuador, and this company makes different kinds of fruit pouches. So there's mango and all sorts of other fruits. This one was cinnamon applesauce in particular. And FDA was able to go to Ecuador and test the cinnamon that was used And the cinnamon itself was 2,000 times what would be considered safe under international standards for lead. So the cinnamon is the culprit, but we still don't know exactly where that cinnamon originally came from or where it got contaminated. There's a lot of suspicion that it was an intentional adulteration, which means that, you know, something was added to it to increase its value. It could have been lead chromate which is an additive that makes spices appear brighter. This is something that's been a big issue in turmeric. So we don't know exactly what happened here, but we do know which pouches were sent to the U.S. There were three brands, Wanabana, Weiss, and Schnucks. And if anyone thinks they've consumed cinnamon applesauce that might be part of this recall, they should absolutely go to fda.gov and check. They were sold on Amazon, Dollar Tree, 
And then in Weiss and Schnucks are two retailers where they were sold as well. So these were sold nationwide. We're talking about millions of servings of applesauce. Well, you know, when I think about how how toxic that cinnamon was, it's just startling because you tend to think, oh, a spice like that, I just use a pinch or two. But when you're talking about that level of toxicity, a pinch or two is enough. Yeah, in this case, the cinnamon is just, it's off the charts. I mean, the good news is this is far and away the worst cinnamon contamination that anyone has seen. You know, the even people in the spice industry you know, and they and they do deal with heavy metals, trying to keep them out of their supply chain, particularly for U.S. companies that are increasingly looking for contaminants. It's a known issue that you can have low levels of heavy metals in spices. But this is so off the charts that it really has a lot of people asking about, again, intentional adulteration. Who did that? Where did it happen? And then the question becomes, well, where else did that cinnamon go? The good news here is that the company that gave the Ecuador pouch maker the cinnamon that supplied it, that company is not shipping food directly to the U.S. So um, FDA has still been doing a lot more screening of cinnamon coming into the U.S. just to kind of check to make sure this isn't a widespread problem for cinnamon, and they haven't so far found high levels which is good. That's really good news. Um, But like anyone else who hears this story, I'm looking at my spice drawer with a lot more, you know, skepticism right now. But you you know, there's babies all over the world. Just because it's not coming to us doesn't mean there's not... You raise a very, very good point. The problem with lead and spices is worse in developing countries for sure. Wow. So let me ask you about, given that so much of our food production in the U.S. is outsourced, is there a mechanism for food that is produced elsewhere and then exported into the United States? Is there a mechanism for oversight of that food now? Well, this is a really big challenge. Um, FDA has jurisdiction over 80% of the food supply, so it's a really big job. And increasingly, our food is very global. So I think the latest statistics are something like 15-ish percent of the food consumed in the U.S. is imported. But for certain categories, it's really high, like 94% of seafood, half of fresh fruit, probably a third of vegetables. And so it's an increasingly difficult job for FDA. They absolutely do not have the capacity to check a lot of food when it comes in. They do not have the capacity to inspect a lot of um, foreign food facilities. There's just too many of them. Um, The estimate is that FDA physically inspects 1% to 2% of food coming into the U.S. And so that puts a lot of onus on retailers, food buyers, and others to set standards basically in the private sector to impose on their suppliers. And so that's what we see a lot of right now. I'm sure there are a lot of parents listening in right now who are a bit panicked. You're a mom with a background in food policy. How do you navigate what products you choose to buy and not buy for your family? Yeah, it's such a good question. I have been covering basically every food crisis for the last 15 years. So if something has gone wrong, 
in food, I've covered it, and that makes me very aware of what can go wrong. I do think it's really important that parents not become overly anxious about food because, you know, stepping back, we it is still true that we have among the safest food supplies in the world. I am not overly anxious about, you know, whether or not something I serve my kid is going to make them sick. So, that, so that's the good news. But that said, we can clearly do better. This lead situation is a tragedy, should never happen. And it really is the job of the food industry and regulators to handle that, right? Like parents should not be having to say, oh, is this brand safe or is this import safe? I mean, that's just not something we should have to think about. We already have enough to think about. I think right now for parents sticking to brands that you know is always a good idea, brands that are well-known tend to have a lot to lose if something goes wrong. They tend to have, I think, a little bit tighter control of their supply chain just because there is more on the line. I'm still using cinnamon in my house. We still have applesauce pouches. You know, I did confirm they were not part of this recall. It's it's not easy, but I think it's important to not have too much anxiety, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Helena. Um, it's wonderful to know that you're there and we can rely on you to come tell these stories. I'm happy to do it. And I hope that next time we talk, it's about something uh, a little happier, but there is, there's no, unfortunately, never a dull moment in food. That was journalist Helena Bodemiller Evich. Subscribe to her newsletter, Food Fix, for all your food policy news and analysis. In a minute, some good news. Bill Addison stops by with a review of Perilla, a pandemic pop-up turned brick and mortar that was just nominated for a James Beard Award. We've got the scoop when Good Food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. If you were someone who chased chefs selling food on Instagram during the pandemic, then you probably know Jihee Kim. Her pandemic pop-up Perilla went brick and mortar last August. And just last week, she was nominated as a semifinalist for a James Beard Award. LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison joins us to talk about this particular pandemic pivot success story. Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. So Perilla is a neighborhood banchan spot. Yeah, so most of us who didn't grow up in a Korean household but have been to Korean restaurants have experienced banchan, the small plates of mostly vegetables, very much including kimchi and sometimes egg or fish that comes with rice and are often perceived as appetizers or side plates. But in the Korean culture, banchan is a fundamental part of the meal, not seen as additions. And in fact, banchan served with rice is often eaten as a meal unto itself. So perilla, which is named for the very prevalent herb in Korean cooking, is a banchan shop at the cusp of Chinatown and Echo Park, as you said, run by chef Jihee Kim. What is Jihee's background? Where she worked? Yeah, cool background. She grew up in Busan, South Korea, and came to California when she was 20. 
She grew up in her parents' restaurant and always thought that she'd go into cooking herself. She went to culinary school in San Francisco and worked at a couple good restaurants there, including Range, a restaurant in the Mission that I loved when I worked at the SF Chronicle in the late 20s, and Gary Danko, a longtime fine dining restaurant. Her husband's family lived in Los Angeles, so they moved back here, and Jihee cooked at Rustic Canyon in Santa Monica before the pandemic. So she worked at these places that were very focused on seasonality and farmer's markets, and it definitely informed how she approaches making banchan in California. Um, So the dosi rack is kind of like a... Korean lunchbox. Yeah, Yeah. Korean lunchbox, kind of like Korean bento. Um, And I understand that there are two options for it at Perilla. Could you describe them? Yes. So she makes one featuring uh, marinated chicken and the other marinated cod, both served hot. And it's sort of the perfect introduction to her food because you you get this, this main fish or chicken, not too big a portion, but very great for lunch, and a bed of beautifully fluffy rice, and then four small portions of banchan. So you get a taste of what she's up to in this rectangular box. What are some of your Perilla favorites? Well, there's a perennial that's hers. You probably had this during the pandemic. It's her gorgeous rendition of rolled omelet that's coiled with the... Yes, right, with the thinnest layer of seaweed. So that adds nothing more than like a hit of umami and... They're these circular slices with these beautiful hypnotic spiraling centers. And the texture is so good with an assortment of vegetables. Jihi loves making kimchi using collard greens, which appeals to my southern roots. And she does potato salad with egg and apple and fermented cucumber, which is really cool. And so it's fun to mix those with other things that are really seasonal. Part of the joy is showing up and seeing what she's come up with this week. So describe the place itself. Um, It has a little courtyard where you can eat, right? Yeah, and that's the the wonderful thing about having um, graduated from pandemic takeout to having her own place now, you can grab a shaded table right outside the store and eat your meal on site. I think what's especially great about that is that if you're eating a doshrak or even a banchan and rice combo, which you can also have, then you're trying small portions of the banchan that they're selling separately. And you might get some excellent ideas about what to take home and eat for later lunches. So the, the, the address, the space itself can be a little tricky to find. Can you um, scatter <laughs> yeah. a few breadcrumbs for us? Sure. The specific name of the neighborhood is Victor Heights. And Perilla is hidden in a development that an architect and preservationist named Jingbo Lu is developing. It's still very much a work in progress. So... When you follow GPS to the address, look for the clutch of peachy orange buildings along Alpine Street. You'll see heavy water coffee, and you 
walk into the development and you'll see the row of tables with umbrellas and tiny but mighty Perilla is at the end of that walkway. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Evan. That was Bill Addison talking about Perilla, a neighborhood banchan shop tucked in between Echo Park and Chinatown. We want to extend a big congratulations to chef and owner Jihee Kim, who's the semifinalist for the James Beard Award for Best Chef California. We've got a complete list of all the LA chefs who were nominated, as well as a link to Bill's LA Times review of Perilla on our website. You know the link. It's kcrw.com slash good food. What goes up must come down. For years, Texas barbecue has been on an upward trajectory, garnering more attention, more awards, and inspiring more barbecue joints to open. But all that success has a downside. Inflation and increased competition mean that many of the state's barbecue joints are struggling to make a profit. As Texas barbecue goes, so goes the nation. Daniel Vaughn, who has one of the coolest titles in the food world, barbecue editor at Texas Monthly Magazine, wrote about the dilemmas facing pitmasters and barbecue restaurateurs. Hi, Daniel. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm so glad um, to have you here. It's been a while since we talked. Yes, but last time we talked, it was over barbecue, so very Yes, it was. Such good barbecue. What is the state of Texas barbecue at the moment? How would you characterize it? Well, I'd say it's still a, a bullish market on barbecue. Lots of barbecue joints still opening, you know, certainly a lot more of them, the weekend-only spots and things like that. But yeah, I, I would say that that's causing part of the problems that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. What about the most established and kind of well-known Texas barbecue places like Snow's, Franklin? You know, are they struggling or is this mainly impacting smaller and less famous places? Yeah, well, you know, you would think that certainly it would be those less famous places. You know, we put out our our top 50 barbecue list at Texas Monthly every four years, and you would think you're on that list and and you're safe, right? But uh, really, I've talked to folks who are in the top 10 of our list, like uh, Franklin Barbecue that you mentioned. I talked to Aaron Franklin uh, for a story that I wrote recently about these struggles, and he said they are certainly not immune from it. Uh, and that, you know, w- with that place especially being so well-known for its brisket, if brisket is expensive, then it's going to hurt their profits really more than a whole lot of other places. So let's talk about that Texas brisket. You write, smoked brisket is still the biggest barrier to profitability. What are the unique financial challenges of making and selling barbecue brisket? Well, um, I mean, first look at a Texas barbecue tray. Uh, We're so well known for selling barbecue by the pound. There are a lot of sandwiches and tacos and stuff, baked potatoes as well, sure. But um, really, when it comes down to it, when people go out for Texas barbecue or when people come to visit Texas, they want smoked meat on butcher paper. So there's nowhere there to really like make up your losses, right? you're, You're selling Uh, just pure meat. And you're probably giving away onions and pickles and barbecue sauce and bread to go along with it too. So there's nowhere to really make up those profits like, you know, a McDonald's does and their drink and their fries and those combo meals. The other problem is the cut itself, right? It's, It's beef brisket. 
there's only two of them per animal. And for the longest time, Texas barbecue was associated with it. And really, it was only found in Texas that you would get this smoked brisket. Well, now that Texas barbecue's popularity is really just, I mean, shot off like a rocket around the country and around the world, that brisket now is being used um, in, you know, thousands of new restaurants across the country over the last 10 years, I would say. And there's still only two briskets per cow. So the the cost that people are going to pay for it just because of that high demand is going to increase. So interesting. And then that's not to mention all the labor that goes into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the brisket itself is one of those cuts that requires, you know, 16 to 18 hours of, of smoking. And to do that, you need not only just able-bodied people to to look after the smoker, you need somebody who's got some expertise to do it as well. So it's a high labor cost for those people. And there's really no way around the fact that you've got to baby that fire. It's not like a steak in a fine dining restaurant, right? It's not like uh, you can just get one of those fired up and and on the plate in 10 or 15 minutes. For a lot of these places, they have a 24-hour cycle between trimming that brisket, seasoning it, getting it on the pit, and then finally serving it. You don't only eat barbecue in, in Texas. You travel the country. Do you think that these challenges we've been talking about um, that Texas places are facing is a harbinger for barbecue in other parts of the states, like my town, L.A., which has become quite barbecue-centric? It has become barbecue-centric there, too. But I think it's really, unless you live here in Texas, it's really hard to understand just the sheer amount of options you have for great barbecue in whatever city you're in. I mean, there literally is one around just about every corner. And I think that is uh, what all these barbecue joints around the country, they enjoy the scarcity that's still around them. Yes, LA has several great barbecue joints, but I mean, the distances between them, and if you measure that in LA traffic, I mean, the hours between each one of them, I mean, it's still a bit of scarcity in the region. And so, you know, all these places that I travel to, um, I certainly go eat at all kinds of barbecue places, but I'm more focused on the Texas style barbecue joints. And for the most most part, you know, they're still pretty much alone in their markets, or maybe they have another spot uh, that they're competing against for Texas barbecue and for that smoked brisket. I mean, I just went up to uh, 250 barbecue up in the DC area. It's in Maryland, run by a Salvadoran couple. And when they were moving from El Salvador to look to where they might want to open a barbecue place, they didn't want to come to Texas because they understood just what the competition was like. So they uh, looked to DC as a much better market and a much, uh, much better place where they could compete. And so that's why they ended up choosing to open there. So interesting. So as a, as an aficionado and a journalist who constantly follows this beat, what are you looking for? What can we expect from um, Texas Barbecue in the near future and in the long run? Well, I think you're seeing the future right now. And, you know, I, I like to say that Texas Barbecue uh, the barbecue that we have here in Texas is sort of our gift to the world. And the world has taken note, right? And so you have all these places all across the country and all across the world who are copying our style of barbecue. But I also think that Texas is learning so much from the world these days with so many um, immigrants coming into Texas and using barbecue is really the backdrop for their cuisine. I mean, Vietnamese and Egyptian, Chinese, all these different communities coming in, Ethiopian and really using Texas barbecue and the ingredients from their cuisine and their culture 
uh, to tell a, a little bit different story about Texas barbecue. So I think we're seeing that in Texas for sure. And then I think uh, you, you're seeing that in California too with um, Heritage Smokehouse and them opening their second location, which when they opened the second one, uh, they really had an ethos to make it much more California style, right? Much more their own style. That is a lot of deliciousness to look forward to. Thank you so much, Daniel. Oh, thank you. That was Daniel Vaughn, the barbecue editor at Texas Monthly Magazine, discussing his recent story about the Texas barbecue bubble and whether it's ready to burst. Coming up, vegetables, fruit. The Market Report is back when Good Food continues. I'm Evan Kleinman, and this is Good Food. It's been a few weeks since we've checked in with Jillian Ferguson at the Farmer's Market. So let's head there now to find out what's in season this first week of February in Southern California. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. Winter is in full swing at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, which means a lot of citrus and an abundance of beautiful winter greens. I'm happy to be here with Bernhard Meiringer today. We were first introduced to his Austrian cooking at Beer Beisel years ago, and now he's back with Lustig, a brand new restaurant at the Helms Complex in Culver City. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm assuming from the name Lustig that there must be an Austrian through line here. Is that true? Absolutely, yes. Uh, so Lustig, yes, that's the way we pronounce it actually, is the German word for fun. And since I consider myself kind of a cheeky and fun person, I was like, yeah, it's time that we show that in my cooking and food as well. <laughs> that's wonderful. So let's talk about how that fun shows up on the menu. We're standing behind the Garden of right now, which is a stand at the market with so many beautiful greens. Are you shopping here today? I am shopping here today. Yeah, we actually use a lot of the little gems and some of the winter greens. Uh, it's actually my favorite thing to eat, believe it or not. In general, salad. It's like uh, the one thing I cannot live without. Well, you're in the right place in California. So how, how are you doing salad at Lustig? So we have a few different ones. So we are actually paying tribute to Bierbeisel by doing the Bierbeisel house salad, which was such a popular item, even though people said, how dare you put a pork belly salad on the menu in Beverly Hills? I was like, of course I will, because people will love it. So it became that popular that I actually featured at the restaurant called Bierbeisel house salad. And uh, we're doing uh, kind of a modern riffraff on salads that everybody else knows and loves, like our Caesar salad. We basically do wintergreens, right? So we have endive, randicchio, chicory, little gems, and all that with some fresh herbs of a completely vegan vinaigrette. So there's no egg or no anchovy in it. But then we basically enhance it with, uh, we, we top it off with trout caviar that then is marinated with a little yuzu, a little soy dashi, so it has that fishy, eggy, citrusy. So when you eat the components together, it's a Caesar salad. When you first see it, you're like, I ordered the Caesar salad. <laughs> that must be a mistake, but people love it actually so far. That's fascinating. So let's break both of these salads down. First, that beer beisel house salad with the pork belly. What else is in it? Um, it has pickled peppers. It has uh, arugula, little jam. We have uh, pumpkin seed pesto, so we basically toast pumpkin seeds with a little styrian pumpkin seed oil. You have uh, shaved uh, purple ninja radishes, uh, a little bit of parmesan shavings, and then a little bit of roasted white corn. And so the vinaigrette is actually made with the braising liquid of the pork belly. 
So it's just another level of, you know, two different mustards, two different vinegars, two different oils. So it's a very rich and tangy dressing. And then you have that crunchy pork belly, kind of like the croutons on it. Wow. Is that typical for Austria? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And what about the Caesar salad, which also did not sound very Austrian, but I'm curious about this vegan dressing. How do you make that? I mean, it's basically vegan mayonnaise, right? And so we basically infuse it with a little bit of uh, nutritional yeast. Um, there is uh, an easy way to get around the Worcestershire sauce. So if you use a little sherry vinegar, a little lemon, a little garlic, you get the same flavor profile of a Caesar salad because it has everything that it needs, right? You have the garlic, you have a little Dijon mustard, you have the citrus. And so it really works. Like people that blind taste it, they're like, yeah, I mean, I can tell there's no anchovy in it, but I can clearly tell it's a Caesar salad dressing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bernhard. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Bernhard Meiringer of the brand new Lustig. The restaurant is open from dinner Tuesday through Saturday at the Helms Bakery Complex in Culver City. Kai Takakawa is part of the Takakawa family that owns the Garden of in Santa Ynez. They're the ones bringing down this gorgeous display of lettuces and greens and row crops every single week at the Wednesday market. And Kai, we were just talking to Bernhard about his salads this time of year. Not only do you bring salad greens, but you bring a ton of beautiful winter greens that are really seasonal and really special right now. I'd love to focus on those. Can you tell us what you have? One of the main attractions right now is our radicchios. We have a good variety of them right now. Um, They start to ramp up in the fall, and as it gets colder and colder, more varieties can grow where we are. And so um, right now we have, I think, like five different types of radicchio. And among that, we also, in our like bitter greens category, we also have um, frisee and escarole and um, some of the chicories like punterella, which we started growing uh, maybe about four years ago or four, yeah, I think four or five years ago. Um, And it's started to uh, really gain a lot of popularity. At first we had to explain it to everyone and now people like start to come back uh, specifically just like get those. So it's really fun to, you know, just see people like catch on to diversity. Definitely, so punterella is such a unique vegetable. It looks absolutely crazy. Describe what it looks like and what people do with it. Yeah, it's, uh, it almost looks like, what are those citrus? Uh, Buddha's hands. Yeah, Buddha's hands. Yeah. Uh, they have these, these fingers that come up in a cluster and they're cylindrical that they kind of come to a point almost like asparagus, but they're hollow inside and they're nestled between these really beautiful, like almost razor-shaped leaves. Um, they're in the dandelion family. So if you know what dandelion greens look like, uh, the leaves are are very indicative of what you know family they're from. And so, because it's in the dand- it's a chicory and the and it's a dandelion type, it can be very bitter. And instead of a normal dandelion green, um, you actually are aiming to eat the stalks in the middle. And so. You can slice those into a salad and they just have such a fantastic texture and crunch. I know that some people like to cook it or like boil it and in like a soup or like just boil it by itself and it'll help get the the bitterness out. 
I recently actually grilled it on like a, a hibachi grill, um, and that was actually really delicious. But I think one of the main things where um, the, the punterella really shines is is not only in its bitterness, but its textural, like just juiciness. Amazing. Well, how long do we get to enjoy all these seasonal seasonal treats? That's a good question. We will have the radicchios and the the cabbages um, for definitely like. Four, four more weeks at least, yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Kai. You're welcome. That was Kai Takakawa of The Garden Of. He comes down every Wednesday from Santa Inez with all these beautiful greens. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Hope Brush and Nick Lamponi. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Gary Masiha, and Phil Richards. I'm Evan Kleiman. If you're looking for a recipe for punterelle, you can find links to one in this week's Good Food newsletter. If you aren't already subscribed, go to kcrw.com slash goodfood and click on newsletter. You'll get a recipe in your inbox every single week. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food. <laughs>